At one time, he sported green trunks, a red vest, and a yellow satin cape. He was the boy wonder, one half of the dynamic duo. But today, the boy is actually a man of considerable accomplishment. From high scholastic achievement to a black belt to entrepreneurship to canine philanthropy. He's Bert Ward. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Let's hope our unknown friend behind the mask is home. Yes, Commissioner. We'll be right there. The bat balls. In 1939, two men working for DC Comics created a superhero called The Batman. At the time, Bob Kane and Bill Finger could not have envisioned that their caped crusader would go on to become one of the most reinvented and reconceived characters in comic book history. The crime fighter, The Batman, was not alone, for his efforts were aided by the youthful Robin. The most popular incarnation of this dynamic duo was formed in 1966 in ABC's television series, Batman. The series starred Adam West in the title role and Burt Ward as Robin. The shows proved as significant to 1960s popular culture as the Beatles. Even now, the series remains for millions of fans, most of whom were born after the series was long canceled, the pinnacle of style, wit, charm, and occasional double entendre. Sadly, Adam West died in 2017, but his colleague and friend, both on and off camera, of many years his junior, Bert Ward, serves as a robust living legacy to one of the most popular television series in history. It is my childhood. Middle-agedhood, delight to have with us today one of my heroes, without question, Burt Ward. You know him as Dick Grayson and Robin from the 1966 Batman series, the only real Batman that ever existed as far as I'm concerned. And so he is now endeavoring in so many different venues with different interests, in particular a charitable organization which he started with his wife some years ago called Gentle Giants. It's a rescue. And uh, it started out with one dog and two dogs and three dogs. And before you knew it, there was somewhere in the regions of 1,500 dogs, which incidentally he and his wife have found homes for. Uh, in addition to that, though, he continues to perform. He's worked with William Shatner. Um, you might know him from the Cape Crusade. You also probably know him also from Crisis on Infinite Earths. So he has never gone away from the superhero venues at all. But he has particular resonance for me, as I will share in a moment. But before I go any further, let me say, Burt Ward, thank you for being a part of Watching America. Well, hello, citizen. <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you, uh, I am an American citizen, but there was a time, Burt, I wasn't. But my first impression of America were two things, one of which was my grandmother giving me a little statuette of the, of, of the Statue of Liberty, and the other one was being handed a magazine with one... Bert Ward on the cover, and that was my introduction to what America was about. And so um, I, I, all I could think of is one day I want to go to Gotham City, I want to go to Gotham City. But there is a tragic side to this story. I started to buy Batman cards with my little money that I had in England. And I had gathered together at least 60 or 70 of these Batman cards, and I made a terrible mistake in England. I brought them to school. What do you think you have there? I have Batman cards. I, I love my Batman Batman is not the kind of material that we want floating around in your head. And they were unduly confiscated. So all these years later, to talk to Robin is victory in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Burt Ward, for being here. 
Well, I'm excited to speak with you, Doctor. I, I have listened to several of your in-depth interviews where you, quote, dive deep, and it is always a pleasure and sometimes a challenge to be able to speak to someone who has the capacity to ask the questions that aren't asked and to look a little deeper and to see the richness that is under the topsoil. Well, I'm so flattered to have you say that. I'm going to treasure that. I'm going to play it back to my wife many times when she asks me to do something around the house. I'm going to say, look what, look what Bert Ward said about me. Click and I'll play it. Um, let's start at the beginning, if we may. You were born Bert John Jervis. Gervis. Gervis, excuse me. Gervis yes. Jr. Uh, I would imagine that you changed your name for, for SAG, for the Screen Actors Guild. Is that correct? I changed my name not because of that, but because the studio thought in, in looking at G-E-R-V-I-S that there would be a number of people that couldn't pronounce it or, or would struggle with it, and they didn't want to have that happen. So what I did is I took my mother's maiden name, which was Ward, and I had it legally changed uh, to Bert Ward, which I now have. So uh, it, uh, it, it was done really um, because the studio... Once they saw how popular Batman was, it was like, hey, we got to make sure that, you know, uh, people are going to be able to uh, talk about you and be able to pronounce your name. Okay, it makes perfect sense. And it certainly has proven to be memorable uh, for everybody. Your father was a highly successful realtor in Beverly Hills and uh, also encouraged you. I understand that you were one of the or if not the youngest person in California to get a, a, a real estate license. Well, well, I actually, uh, uh, Alan, I started work at an early age. My father had this early work ethic. So at my, and my father at the time, when I, uh, after I was born, uh, owned the largest traveling ice show in America, which was a predecessor to Ice Capade. It was called Rhapsody on Ice. And so at age two, I became the world's youngest professional ice skater in the show. And from those memories, not too, I can't remember too much, but I do remember on the ice, skating around this big, uh, like a big arena inside, and you couldn't see the people because they're in the dark and all the lights are on, on the performers. Sure. But uh, two of the great skaters would come out, and one take one hand and take the other, and they'd skate around, and everybody's clapping, oh, wow, a two-year-old skating, even though they're <laughs> holding them. And then they'd let me go, and I'd skate around by myself, and people would like tearing the seats out. They couldn't believe that a two-year-old could skate or, you know, around this giant arena, just like a regular skater. So did you at an early age, Bert, um, have a heightened sense of pleasing an audience and knowing how to do it? I mean, right virtually from the get-go, it sounds like that's what you were doing. You know, it wasn't so much pleasing the audience, although I, I always have tried throughout my whole life, but it was also having fun, you know? And you see, <laughs> in my life, Alan, I think we all have to have fun. You know, I have a theory about life. And that is the first hundred years of the hardest. After that, it's pretty smooth sailing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, well, you got the name Sparky as a child. How did that come about, the nickname? Well, that was my mother. That was my mother's nickname for me because I was always highly energetic. I mean, in, you know, I always in everything I did, I did it intensely. There was no halfway. You know, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So whether it was my schoolwork or sports, which were everything to me um, growing up. It, everything was just very, you know, it, it, and it wasn't so much competitive. That wasn't the nature. He was always wanting to do the best and having fun doing it. There was a significant occurrence, uh, as been told elsewhere, that you were 10 years of age and you used to have a great fondness for comic books, in particular Superman and Superboy. And so much so that you even donned a towel around your neck. And as I hear tell, there's actually a photograph of you with a with a, a bathroom towel around your neck. Uh, there was no way you could have seen that as a precursor to what your life would be. But what attracted you to Superman, Superboy and superheroes? Well, um, first of all, uh, I was, uh, as a kid growing up, even though I had friends, I wasn't a real social person. I was a person that was very introspective, did a lot of thinking and reading. And I kind of grew up uh, kind of in a way uh, like a loner, but not, not a complete loner. So, uh, and I love to fantasize about things, you know? I mean, and uh, where I lived, they didn't have Batman comic books. The only thing they had were Superman comic books. Mm. And, and kids loved reading, you know, all kids loved reading comic books at, at the time. And uh, 
So, uh, I, yes, that's true. I had a bath towel held together with a clothespin, and I ran, ran around, uh, rode my tricycle, and um, I, and I that was like kind of my first envisioning. You see, my thought is that thoughts are things, and if you think hard enough and long enough and hard enough, you can actually bring them to you. You probably would have been aware of, of the old Superman television series with George Reeves in the 1950s series. Did that have an, a, an impact on you at all? I mean, by then you would have been older, of course. But um... Yes, that's true. And, and I enjoyed watching it very much. And, and in my case, um, I, I would go to school and I would come home after school and my father had, a, had built a beautiful home. But I would spend hours, hours every single day after school taking my ball and kicking it against the concrete block wall and running and kicking it again, daydreaming of superheroes and daydreaming of doing fantastic things bigger than life. And, and this occurred not just in, in, in school, but in, recurred uh, in high school. But I never had actually thought about you know, per- performing as an actor doing that. I thought of being the real thing. Well, you certainly proved yourself to be terribly adroit physically and mentally uh, growing up. And certainly by the time you got to Beverly Hills High School, which you graduated from, with the American Medical Association and Society in Beverly Hills, you were clocked at reading over 30,000 words a minute with a 90% comprehension. Yes. Yeah, that's the equivalent of reading Macbeth, the entire play in one minute. Wow. Alan, I read War and Peace at UCLA in my humanities class, I read War and Peace, which is 1,442 pages in 45 minutes, and I got an A on the essay final. Well, I I need to point out, just to put it in a place of of reference for the listener, okay, to be able to read 30,000 words a minute and have 90% comprehension level is indeed incredible, exceptional, because the average person only reads 240 words a minute and has... Actually, if they're lucky, 40% comprehension level. That's so, true. That's so you, true. you're at genius level. How did this work with Evelyn Woods, which was speed reading in the day? I mean, had you done this through Evelyn yeah, Woods? I was, yeah, no, I, I didn't use Evelyn Woods because it was too slow. Wow. Uh, she used the hand to try to – let me explain. Two, I can give you two techniques that will double or quadruple your, the speed of your reading, okay? okay. One is called – uh, indented reading, and the other is called space reading. Indented reading, the average person that looks at a book or a column, they, they, their eye starts about a half an inch to an inch outside of the actual text. And then they read across the line, and they end about an inch outside the text. What you need to train to do is only allow your eye to look one inch inside the text on both sides. What does that do? That cuts down the number of, of glances. This is all about the number of glances. So that right there can double your speed. And they use space reading. Space reading is most people look at a line and read. What I do when I first started, I was taught to look at the space between the lines. And it's not easy to do. It's kind of like if you try to play piano, you've never played piano. you, you, You know what you want your fingers to do. They just won't do it. Well, it's the same kind of thing with your eyes. You're looking at that space between the lines and you're trying to read what is above it and what's below it. So as you practice this over and over and over, then you learn to read paragraphs. And at the ultimate speed, you have to read an entire page in a single glance. And the way you do that is you eliminate the articles, the A and the, you know, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And you look for who, what, why, where, and when. This is not pleasure reading. It's business reading or work reading, I should say. And, and, it, and it, it takes an enormous amount of concentration. And just like anything else that you, it's physical effort. It's not just, uh, you know, casual. And as a result, though, you can get all of that information. So at what age did you start doing this? I started in high school. I think I was in my second year. I had a, a teacher, uh, a Dr. Sparks, who was, uh, a, uh, a, he was a, a Ph.D. and he taught reading and the Beverly Hills School System and at Beverly High. He ultimately had his own television show called Read Right. And I became his number one student. Anything I do, I go in full speed, total the commitment. So for me, once I was challenged by learning this, it was like, how fast can I go? You know, wow. what is the limit? What, what can I gain? What, what, what information can I digest and be able? I mean, just think about it. It means that for every time you double your speed, you can read twice as many books. 
you you can analyze things. On Batman, my dear friend, who I, I love so much, Adam West, he had a teleprompter. I memorized all my lines right at the time I read them the first time. It used to frustrate Adam because yeah. I would never make a mistake, and he couldn't stand it. <laughs> you make a mistake, you're making me look so bad. You once said, I'm, I'm going to digress because I'm going to talk about something else and then get into Batman properly, but you once said about Adam West, uh, which I found terribly amusing, is that he could steal a scene because he would nurse every line and say it excruciatingly slow when necessary. Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, no, he understood the concept of television. He knew that if, uh, to make a television show, there was 22 minutes of programming, eight minutes of commercials. So he also understood that the longer or and slower he spoke, the more time the camera would have to be on him and thus, <laughs> right. by, by definition, less on others. So he would, you know, and, and the thing was, he wasn't just happy speaking slowly. He would cut off my line. He could have this speech, and then all I would say is, you're right, Batman. You know, like, and, and the voice I would do, you're right, Batman. And I would say, <laughs> you're right, yes, Robin. And he'd come <laughs> and cut my line in half and then proceed to this very slow, drawn-out, you know, it's so funny. He, he, he and I, we got along so amazing because we were so opposite. And <laughs> he liked to think of himself very grandiose, you know, like um, Winston Churchill. Or, uh, I mean, I mean, he, he once told me that three <laughs> Bs, Batman, the Beatles, and Bond. And then he told me that he, he had watched Charlton Heston, uh, you know, uh, mm. reading the Ten Commandments, okay, coming down from the Sermon on the Mount. And when he saw that on the, on the movie theater, he really realized the full potential of what Batman meant, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, I mean, my gosh. And I was like this wild kid, highly energetic, you know? And, and, and so what he would do on the set, we would have a two shot and he would turn and walk right up to the camera where his face was solely in the camera. You couldn't even see his eyes. It was his mouth. was filling that. And they say, wow, stop, cut, cut. Adam, you can't do that. This is a two shot. Well, I learned very quickly. So when he would start to do that move and turn to the camera, I would run under his cape and come up in front of him. And of course, you know, he would squeal like, oh, Robert, Bert, you can't do that. You're, you're taking away from my, my close up. So it must have felt like you were working with Charles Lawton at times with this, you know, self grandiose sense that he had of, of the role. Did it feel like that? Well, no, it felt like he was playing and he played with me and he played with the audience. You yes. know, our television was different the way we, we became a success because we did something in my mind, uh, a number of things that no one had ever done before besides the color of, you know, which had just really come into being and besides right. the spectacular sets and the spectacular villains and everybody bigger than life. Adam and I, did something different. People that watched television at that time, they watched the show as a third party in their living room, watching that screen and not really being involved. But Adam and I, the way we performed and our chemistry together, we tried to reach through that television set and grab people. And others, we used to say that we put on our tights to put on the world. In fact, we were the only superheroes at the time that wore our underwear on the outside of our clothes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you did to, to great aplomb. You, you were able to, uh, the, the, there was, it was a multi-tiered series. There was the, you know, the adult comprehension and the child comprehension. And what's very interesting for people like me who initially were introduced to it as children and then be able to be able to revisit it as teenagers and then older, you just think to yourself, my gosh, the level of cleverness that was going on in this series, um, which, you know, obviously, as one would expect, children are completely oblivious to. I must ask you a couple of, of, of things before we got fully into to the Batman era, uh, because you did have a life prior to that. You, you also studied in Bucks County uh, in New Hope, Pennsylvania, Bucks County Playhouse. How did you like that experience? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. I, I was very fortunate in having an opportunity to apprentice there right after high school. And, and we built sets, and we had some, you know, the, uh, Buck County, for those that don't know it, um, is a very famous, very prestigious old playhouse that was the location of where Broadway plays before they went on Broadway were tested. Right. And um, it's not too hard, New Hope, Pennsylvania, not, not too far from New York. But for me, it was fantastic. I, I mean, I'll tell you, there was another young man there named uh, Rob Reiner that was apprenticing at the time. Wow. 
you know, he was, right. of course, the son of Carl Reiner, who recently we, passed away. We just lost, but, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and so we would build these sets, and we would work ungodly hours. And then every other week, we'd have to stay up the entire weekend. We'd start from Friday morning until Monday morning, getting this, you know, changing the set out, getting it ready for the next, you know, a, a star celebrity that came in to do their summer stock. And at that moment, did you say, this is going to be my career, I'm going to, I'm going to go return to L.A. and I'm going to pursue this with all I've got? Because you did go back into to doing real estate. Uh, so in your mind, where were you at as far as professional, if you will, advancement? I, I, you know, at the time, I, I enjoyed doing it. I was having fun. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I was grasping on this as a stepstone to go elsewhere. I just enjoyed it for what it was. But I was also studying acting, not just at UCLA when I when I came back after Bucks County, but uh, also professionally. And I was doing things that are, I mean, I was studying method actor, which is wild, very famous uh, acting coach who had me go into the zoo three times a week. And I would take on the mannerisms of wild animals. I was working on my kangaroo for about three or four weeks. And of course, you know, the people there, the zoo workers and stuff, they say, oh, that's mm-hmm. the guy, you know, yeah, he's a little wacky. But uh, I learned so much from that and I had the greatest time, you know, and, and just a piece of trivia that um, I remember one time uh, after a class with my acting coach, his name was Eric Morris, incredibly talented man. He said, Bert, I'd like you to, uh, I'd like you to wait afterwards. I, I want to talk to you. I said, oh my gosh, maybe I've done something wrong. And after everyone left, he said, you know, Bert, he said, uh, you're different than everyone else here. And I thought, oh, maybe that's bad. And I said, oh. And he said, yeah. He said, everybody here, including you, really wants to be an actor. I mean, they just they can just breathe it and eat it and sleep it and talk it. But you're different. And I said, well, how's that? He said, I have the feeling that if you get it, you love it. But if you didn't get it, it wouldn't change your life one bit. You'd be just as happy. And, and it's true. And it's yeah, true. Yeah. And he said, that's what makes it different. He says, the others are going to have a harder time because the intenseness of the burningness of them wanting it so bad sometimes will show up in an interview and actually turn off the people that are hiring. Whereas yes. you have this kind of a, well, hey, if I get it, I get it. And if I don't, I don't. And in the meantime, I'm going to go have some fun. You know, here's a perfect segue into William Dozier then. Um, who was the producer and uh, the genesis and showrunner in, in almost every regard for Batman. It's 1965, and you read in the trades, I presume, that they're looking for someone to play an action hero of a sort, although the term action hero wasn't necessarily used then. And you, you audition, and you meet Adam West. Uh, what was your first impression of Adam West? Because you both did the, and I'm going to play it in a moment here, uh, you did the the audition. Uh, there was a counterpart to you with Peter Diel and Lyle Wagner. That was the other team that was was uh, vying to to possibly get the roles. But you're first clapping your eyes on Adam West. What was your first impression? Well, I, I want to answer that, but I have to clear up a little bit. of. Uh, I didn't read anything. I didn't read trades. I didn't know that trades existed. I was studying acting, and I was selling houses for my father. I became the the first, the youngest person in the state of California to get a real real estate license. My father was one of the top three brokers there. He had long before sold the ice show and, uh, and, and came to Beverly Hills. We moved there, became a prominent broker. And because I knew so much of the information, I didn't even have to take a, a college or high school course or any course. I just knew the information. Right after my 18th birthday, I passed it. Wow. I was sitting uh, selling houses for my father working with my father and uh, Saul David, a very famous producer um, came to a house. Uh, He ended up buying the house. I asked him if he could help me get some work. He said, and and I said, can you watch a scene? And I did a scene for him. He said, well, it's pretty good. He said, let me send you to an agent. He sent me to an agent. The first thing he said to me is I can't get work for the actors I've got. You know, I would never take anybody new. The only reason I'm taking you is because Saul David sent. And don't expect to work for a year. And if you do, you'll probably get one cent. And not only that, I love you. Right, right. (laughs) And then, so I said, okay, okay. So I left and I went, I was living on the beach, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and I went to my little apartment there across from the beach. And I was just doing my thing. And a couple weeks later, I got a phone call from someone in that agent's office that said, um, there's something going on over 20th Century Fox. We don't know what it is. But we got you an appointment tomorrow at 4.30. Go over there, and when you get to the gate, tell them you're there. 
uh, to go to uh, meet this certain casting director. And I, I said, okay. And I drove there, and you know, and they let me in. I found my way to the bungalow on the set. You know, they have mm-hmm. all these bungalows on the, on the studio lot. And I went there, and I was introduced to the casting director. And I talked to him for a few minutes. He said, would you like to meet the executive producer? I said, sure. I mean, I figured everybody got to meet the executive producer. Well, that's not true. And I went in to meet the executive producer and not having been discouraged, not having been rejected, not having been mentally damaged from the rejection that so many actors actually get. I just walked in. I said, hello, sir. And I grabbed his hand and shook his hand. He was completely taken aback by me that I was so (laughs) aggressive, but in a polite way. Yes. And he looked at me for a minute. He said, you know, you're kind of big for this part. And I thought of quickly and I said, oh, but you know, sir, I promise you I won't grow anymore. And he <laughs> laughed. We talked for a couple of minutes. He said, would you like to do a screen test? I said, sure. I mean, I figured everybody got to do a screen test. Well, Alan, that's not true. Everybody right. doesn't get to do a screen test. But I didn't know that. So I went to do a screen test having no knowledge whatsoever what I was screen testing for. And when I went there, I was handed a single piece of paper that had multiple paragraphs on it. And the only thing that you saw above each speaking part was a name, Bruce and Dick. Bruce, Dick. There was no Batman. There was no icons. Just words, okay, with a first name only. Not Bruce Wayne, not Dick Grayson, Bruce and Dick. I was introduced to Adam at about 15 minutes before we worked. I sat down. Within five minutes, the two of us were laughing. We never stopped laughing for more than 50 years. Oh, we, we absolutely just got along so incredibly well. And because I have this incredible memory, right? I memorized my lines and, and I'm ready to do the scene. And the director, his name was Robert Butler. He also directed the pilot. We were standing by a, uh, 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 like the stairs coming down from the second floor of the Wayne Manor. I didn't know it was Wayne Manor, just these, you know, big stairs. And he said, Bert, he says, you know, I'd like to try something. Can you sit on that handrail and slide down that handrail and, and jump onto the floor when you get there? I said, well, yeah, I guess I can do that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you get up like a second floor and you slide down on a handrail. You got to fly. Be careful, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to be real careful. You don't fall on the stairs or fall off the other way. Right. Well, what happened was when they rolled camera and I slid down, I was so focused on not falling that when I got to the bottom was the one time in my life I forgot my line because <laughs> I was so focused on yes. not falling. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I know my lines. Let's do it again. And of course, then from then on, it, it was, you know, I never missed a line. And I, in fact, I had a reputation as first take. Everything I would do would be on the first take unless the other actor messed it up. Well, uh, it, it's it's undeniable the success that you have. People can go on YouTube and see the clip where where you're doing also your your martial arts. You you were pursuing karate. You had a brown belt, and then you went on to get a black belt. And moreover, you are in a hall of fame for your martial arts in Korea. Uh, when you actually got the role, your agent wasn't with you, and so you're called to 20th Century Fox. You go to sign on the dotted line, which is a surprise to you, uh, and you really didn't have great representation because, as I understand it, and you correct me if I'm wrong, you were only making $300 per week? No, no, no. Let me clarify. I got a call about six weeks after I did this screen test. During that six, six weeks period, for the last four of the six weeks, I would get phone calls from the studio asking, uh, what's your shoe size? What's your hat size? Well, I don't wear a hat. Well, go get your head measured. Well, where do I go to get my head measured? You've got to go to a tailor. Anyway, all of this stuff is going on. I had no idea. And then I got a call from these agents, and, and okay, and they said, "Oh, Bert, we'd like you to come in and sign contracts." And I thought, "Wow, they're really going to represent me now." I mean, they finally decided they're going to represent me. So I went to sign the contracts, and when I looked down at the contracts, it said 20th Century Fox on them. It didn't say the name of the agency. I said, "What's this?" Mm. They said, "This is your contracts." I said, "For what?" They said, for, "For the role of Robin. You got it." I said, "I got it." They said, "Didn't the studio tell you?" I said, "No." And when I got to the studio, the next time I saw them, they said, you mean the agents didn't tell you? I had it for four of the six weeks that I waited, sweating it out, because neither one of the, knew that the other one hadn't told me. 
You're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am thrilled, 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 underline that three times, to have as my guest Bert Ward, as you know, as Dick Grayson and Robin from the Batman series of 1966 on ABC. Now, I've heard this rumour, and it may just be uh, a vicious rumour. Oh, not necessarily vicious, but an erroneous rumour, put it that way, that Madge Blake, who played Aunt Harriet Cooper, was the highest paid person on the show. It's not not true at all. She was the sweetest little lady. She was exactly what she, I mean, they cast her. You couldn't have cast a better person. But but no, no, Adam was got very good money. I think he got at the time. And I know this in today's world, it's it's, it's pitiful. But he got $3,500 a week. I got $350 a week. Wow. Okay, to co-star in the series. But the second year, it took a big jump up to $450 a week. <laughs> and the third year was the grand winner at $600 a week for half a year, which was uh, 23 episodes. So did you ever take Adam aside and say, um, look, bud, uh, I admire you greatly. We're good friends, but there's, a, there's an inequity here. Can you help me out? No, it was just the opposite. I was recently did an interview where a prominent executive from 20th Century Fox, who I knew, and who, who at the time I was doing Batman was hired to, to put together uh, the promos for the television series just before it went into syndication mm. and told a story where that he, he was, he was told, you got to get in touch with Adam and Bert. And, and, and so we called Adam first and said, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I need to pay you some money. I need you to do some promos. We're going to go into syndication. And, and Adam, according to the producer said, uh, well, have you called Bert yet? said, no, no, I haven't. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, if you give me Bert's money, I'll do better. <laughs> and he said, I can't do that, Adam. I, I have to pay Bert. I can't do that. Adam. And that's, let me tell you something. I was on the Conan O'Brien show. Conan O'Brien asked me about Adam. And I said, well, I love Adam. He says, and I said, the only thing with Adam is you can't trust him with your wife or your pocketbook, which is true. Uh, but, but he was a lovely man. And, 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 and we had incredible amount of fun together, even on weekends after working 14, 15 hours, five days a week. And those outfits, which were, oh, my God, you can't believe how uncomfortable it was that we could go out on the weekends and play tennis together. Let me ask you about Conan O'Brien. Is it true or is it mythological that you went to receive the Man of the Year Award at Harvard and he absconded? with an, a, a group of students absconded, carried off your uniform for Robin with the lights going out. Is that true? Well, or is that, that... that is correct. That is correct. No, but here's exactly what happened. That I was, I was voted man of the year, 1984, uh, for Harvard University. And I didn't even go there. I went to UCLA. Uh, and, uh, and that was pretty prestigious because I won over, sure. uh, 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 won Carlos of Spain, the king <laughs> of Spain at the time. So I was very honored. And I was speaking there and it was a filled, filled place. And he came up with one other person and said, we're security here at, at Harvard. And we've had a report that your costume was potentially in danger. We want to just take it off stage and hold it. And I said, okay, because I had it hanging on a rack. I wasn't going to be in costume trying mm-hmm. to, because I'm in costume, I'm in character, you know, right. I always respect security. So they took it off and sure enough, they're the ones that stole it, he and a friend of his. <laughs> and it took about a day and a half, but I got it back. Let me ask you about the, the Robin um, uh, costume. I always wondered as a kid, okay, obviously in the begin, in, the, in the front you have this lacings that went on the vest. Uh, did it actually under the cape have a zipper? Is that how you actually got into it? Were you zipped in from behind? Yes. It, no, yeah. Well, you, first of all, you've got, you've got your, your boots, you've got your trunks, you've got your tights, and then you have the T-shirt, and then you have the red wool vest that zips up behind. Then you have this double-thick bridal uh, 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 satin cape it's incredibly heavy because it's double thick and it's pulling your neck back. And mm. then you've got the, the black uh, mask that like just was tight enough to your eyes to continually touch your eyelashes and yes. drive you crazy. Well, um, there were some concerns that people had about your masculinity, to put it politely. And so they give you or want you to have uh, as, a, as, a, as an amendment to fix this problem, uh, the, the, if you will, the inversion of Viagra. Holy unrefillable prescriptions. How did that go? Well, well, you didn't start off that. Well, they started off with these very excited wardrobe men who could hardly wait to try on every god-awful contraption, made me try on, you know, all kinds of, you know, double-thick underwear, penal restraints, everything you could possibly imagine. 
And and when that didn't work, and 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 that, I thought at first it was a big joke, but it really wasn't. ABC actually contacted uh, you know um, 20th Century Fox, who talked to Greenway Productions, the production company, and that Catholic Legion of Decency was adamant that this is you can't have this on the air, and they and they they said you got to do something, Bert. And mm-hmm. and I so that when all of that other stuff didn't work, they found this quack doctor that gave me these pills that. It really worked, but I got to tell you, after three days of taking them, I said, you know, this could mess me up for life. Holy impregnability! You know, uh, so I stopped taking them, and that, what I did is I used my cape to cover. Now we did a show, and of course you're from UK, right? Right. And it, uh, the show that I did was a three-parter called the Londinium Larcenies. Yes. And they uh, and they had these. Uh, oh, the, the the villains were the well, the henchmen were not men. They were these very beautiful girls. There were like six or eight of them. And and the story was rampant all over 20th Century Fox. <laughs> it was like a virus all over 20th Century Fox. And what these girls were doing in my scenes, they would purposely bump against me, trying to get a rise out of them, so to speak. Well, let's talk about um, uh, awakening of uh, masculinity. I'll, I'll be self-reflexive in this one. Um, I think as a little boy, I became very much aware I was a little boy by watching Julie Newmar uh, as Catwoman. And um, uh, not to take anything away from Lee Merriweather or certainly Eartha Kitt, but Julie Newmar had it. I mean, just completely had it. What was she like to work yes. with? Wonderful, but very strange. And mm-hmm. very sweet, but very strange. Let me tell you, Adam was a very wild guy, okay? Mm-hmm. He got me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> I mean, not real trouble, but, you know, he was he was the ultimate wild playboy, okay? Yes. When he wasn't married, okay? Right. Was, you know, when he was married, he was a good, faithful guy. But when he wasn't, he was beyond wild. Even Adam was afraid of Julie because Julie, she has this amazing mind, and you can just feel her thinking. And it's the only time in my entire career where I saw Adam on the defensive when Julie would come around to have a conversation because she would pause and you could just see that mind. And then all of a sudden she'd say something so strange that all of us like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do here? <laughs> Let's talk about other people. Um, Frank Gorshin, I had the opportunity to see him live one time years ago, but he was brilliant. He was at one point a part of a, of a show that was done in England, which was shown in America called The Copycats. You may remember that. Um, uh-huh. He was a great impressionist. Uh, you worked with him in the very first pilot episode. Is that correct? Well, that and several other episodes. And we became personal friends. He came out to my house. He was scared to death of dogs. Okay. Scared to death. Really? Absolutely. But, 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 but he calmed down. Well, especially when you have giant dogs. Okay. Yes. And, uh, and, and believe it or not, there was no reason to be scared because believe it or not, in the case of dogs, the bigger they are, the more gentle they are. But in any event, he was such a dear, funny man with the absolutely rubber face. I mean, that's the only thing I could say. And yes. he was, and, yes. and he and I had some great conversations. All of these people, I got along with everybody. Every one of these stars that came on the show, I was like the kid in the candy store. I mean, I remembered them either from movies or television. And every one, I tried to find a way to have a chance to talk to them. And they were all very nice. Here are the dastardly villains. The Catwoman. You're going to see the perfect crime. The Joker. Have you heard this one? It'll kill you, Batman. (laughs) The Penguin. There are two eggs this wily bird is going to scramble. Batman and Robin. (laughs) The Riddler. Question. Who's going to make the feathers fly and knock Batman and Robin out of the sky? Just, just nice people, but being very famous and, and very good at their craft. Extremely professional. Let's remind people, Cesar Romero was the Joker. Uh, and, um, you know, he obviously held on to his Latin lover mystique by keeping his mustache, even with makeup over it. Um, and then you had Burgess Meredith as the Penguin. And uh, as we've already alluded to, Eartha Kitt, who eventually would become Catwoman and, and take over. Uh, let me ask you uh, uh, a technical question. Uh, the technical question is, first of all, I've sat in a Batmobile. And that was quite a contraption. And so you have George Barris, who designed the car. There was the original um, uh, car that was made. No, there were three Batmobiles that were metal at the time, and uh, they were beautifully finished on the outside, but they weren't finished on the inside. I mean, the dashboard was finished, 
but because they had to get lighting equipment in where your your legs are, that uh, they were always and it was always you know it, had, it, it wasn't real comfortable sitting in there when you're doing a still shot because mm-hmm. you know you have to have your legs on one side and the light hot light and you better not move the slightest bit and get burned from the hot lights. You know, it, it, today they have cool lights. In those days, we had arc lamps, yes. things that you could fry an egg with, you know. Right. So um, when, when, when you were doing your role as, as Robin, I mean, you brought a distinctive energy. I mean, you would jump over the, the door. You wouldn't open the door. I've opened those, and they're quite heavy. But you would jump over it, and then you would jump on the back, uh, and and you brought an energy to the vehicle, and the vehicle became almost a personality in of itself. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. But let me tell you what I did. First of all, imagine you have a crew. Instead of about 30, which is a normal-sized crew, they had 80 on Batman. Wow. Why did they have 80? Because they had all these special effects, these things, that visual effects that wouldn't work right. You know, all these contraptions. You had all these people sweating over this, trying to make it work, right? Well, because of that, Adam and I were basically left alone. In other words, nobody ever told me what to do other than fact, well, this scene, you're in front of the, you know, the Batmobile or this scene, you're working at the Bat computers. And so we, in the very first episode, we pull up outside this building and instead of jumping over the door or opening the door, I almost never opened the door. I stood up on the door and walked the tail fin on the back Mm. and jumped off. Little did I know that George Barris and three of his his guys were having a heart attack behind the cameras that I was going to ruin their paint job. <laughs> Another technical question, which I think many people have wondered about, the bat poles. Uh, obviously, on one one side of the soundstage, you, you jumped to them. And how far did the, the Bruce Wayne Manor bat poles descend? Did they go down like five feet and you guys had to kneel down? Or did they sufficiently go down <laughs> a considerable distance? All right, let me tell you the story of that. In Wayne Manor, there was it was it went down 10 feet, okay? They they had and and, uh, and so when they opened up the the library wall, uh, I, I I opened up Shakespeare head and turned mm-hmm. the knob and and then the door opened and we slid down. That was about ten feet, but they did one filming only one time that was so dangerous and they could never get away with doing it now. Where we had to climb up to the top of the soundstage on these old wood rickety stairs, you know, where you can see through. The yeah. And you're climbing and climbing. Because and climbing. those sound stages were made in the 20s. Yes, 60 or 65 or 70 feet tall. And they had two poles. We only did it one time. There were no nets. There was nothing to protect us. And we had to jump out and grab the poles and slide down. Wow. I'm telling you, we could have been killed. Yes. Adam and I could have been killed. And I'll tell you something. I learned real quick from doing it in the library when you're only going down 10 feet. What you do is you have to take your shoes and turn the inside of your soles against the pole, okay, and hold on to them more than even your gloves. Because yes. even if holding gloves sliding down at that speed would burn your hand. Gosh. So I, and it would actually take the rubber off the soles of our, my bat boots, since Adam's as well. We did that one time. Then there was one other shot. There's a lot of people saying, well, how do they get back up? You know, how do they have right. an elevator, whatever? Right. And they filmed a scene where they used a hydraulic lift, and Batman and I stood on, on these little, like, kind of like little couches around it. holes, and it just takes you up. And, and, and those things really worked, but they only did the big ones one time because it was so expensive and so dangerous. So the Batcave one, the Batcave poles, did they ascend like 20, 30 feet? I mean, because did you do, I mean, obviously they would replay variations feet, of it. Alan, 50, 55 feet. Oh, my gosh. I'd yes, be terrified. Yes. I mean, honestly, I mean, I know you suffered I a lot. Was. I was. Let me tell you another scene. that They had a show where, the, where I'm supposed to be hung out over this building, and they went to the top of the soundstage. I had to go up those darn rickety stairs, yes. okay? And yeah. I got up on top of the soundstage, and they said, Bert, we've got, uh, right after lunch, we're going to film this, this scene where you've got two of the stuntmen. They're holding you over. You're going to be dangling over the top of the building. And we're shooting it from the ground. We don't have any nets or anything, but the guys are going to hold you. They said they wouldn't let you slip. Okay. I said, wait a minute. We just had fried chicken for lunch. They could, their hands are slippery. I think could let me go. <laughs> I made them tie my leg with a big stick. One of the ropes that they use on set is it's like a, it's like something you'd hold a, a ship with. It's a, but yes. an stick. I tied it around my ankle because that wasn't going to be in the shot. Tied it around the pole and I tied it myself. And yes. then I let them hang me over hung over 
70 feet high, uh, held by these two guys. This was real, Alan. I, I, I would have been terrified. I got to tell you, I would have said, you know what? I'm taking a walk. You know, <laughs> your problem was that your mask, right? You couldn't, you couldn't have uh, a a double work for you because your face was so exposed. Where, where oh, Adam I West learned could... that in the very first shot in the bat in the first shot of the very first day in in the bat cave coming out. Where I, I get in the car and it's the stuntman. I said, "Well, why are Hubby, you here?" Right? Because was it's it? a, yeah, Hubie, Hubie Kern. Hubie Kern. And he says, "Well, because it's very dangerous, and the studio doesn't want to take a, a chance of Adam West getting hurt, so they're having me do this dangerous stunt." I said, "Oh, okay." And then I sat to myself, said, "Well, wait a minute. If this is dangerous, do I have a stuntman?" He said, "Oh, yeah, you do." I said, "Well, that's great. Why isn't he here?" Oh, well, he's over having coffee with Adam West. I said, wait a minute. And I can hear him say, roll it up, get ready to film. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a mistake. And they came over for <laughs> the problem. I said, this man's telling me this is a dangerous shot. Yeah, it is. And he's telling me I have a stuntman that's just over having coffee with Adam West. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, why is not he here? We can't use him, bro. Well, why can't you use him? He doesn't look like you. Well, why, <laughs> why don't you hire somebody who looks like me? And find it. And the camera's going to be close up on you. And that's when I came out. First time I went to the hospital, four days in a row of filming. The first day, coming out at 55 miles an hour, the stuntman executed the fast turn perfectly, but unexpectedly my door flew open. It knocked the cameraman off the camera truck, knocked over the giant arc lamp. If it landed on somebody with a stone, I was thrown towards the door, and I threw my hand behind me, and I luckily wrapped my little finger by pure luck around the gear shift knob, and it kept me from falling out, but it dislocated my finger. And instantly, I was in incredible pain, and the dust was everywhere, and they ran over Bertie okay, and I said, yeah, but my hand is killing me. And through my glove, my finger was already double-sized. I said, <laughs> I, 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 and they said, Bert, we got to get you to a hospital right away. You know, your finger, this got to be incredibly painful. I said, yes. And I got up, I said, well, where's the car? Oh, oh, we can't go now, Bert. <laughs> we didn't get the shot. <laughs> and that was at 7.30 in the morning, and I left for the hospital at 12 noon. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Frank Zappa, you, you've had great associations. You you were, you were knew Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was in the first fighting scene with you. Um, you knew Brandon Lee as a baby. Uh, and you also had a friendship and association with Frank Zappa. And you made a recording with Frank Zappa, uh, which was Boy Wonder, I Love You. Boy Wonder, I Love You. How did that come about? Well, MGM Records came to me and insisted. I said, look, I can't think. Oh, don't you worry about it, Bert. Don't you worry about it. Here I am, all American apple pie, and they hire Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Hi, kids. It's me. Your pal, the boy wonder. Taking this opportunity to catch up on my fan mail. Even as a boy wonder, it's really hard to read all the tons of mail I get. Here is a happy letter from someone just about your age. Dear, cute, wonderful, fabulous, magnificent, exquisite boy wonder. A cold chill runs up my spine every time I see you sock a villain. And oh, how I cry when you're even scratched. Please don't send me a mimeographed copy of interesting facts about you. I want your handwriting. I have a whole wall of my room dedicated to you. Oh boy, wonder. I'm making a gum wrapper chain to symbolize my love for you. It's going to be as long as I am tall, and I'm five foot ten inches in stocking feet. Please, boy wonder, please come next Saturday and sleep for a week or two. I will feed you breakfast in bed. I will make your bed for you. And I like you so much that I want you to spend the whole summer with me. I hope you know this is a girl writing. If you think Frank Zappa looks pretty wild, you should see the guys in his band. You wouldn't believe them. They would come out and play, <laughs> and then they'd tear up their instruments. They'd tear up, they'd tear up couches. I mean, that was their thing. They destroy everything in their path. <laughs> and, and here's, uh, and, you know, and so uh, because I couldn't sing, I said, "Look, I've got an idea. How about if I take together some of these fan letters 
and then put some music to it. But what happened was at the time, because it was a fan letter from a little girl that said, oh, can you come over and, and I'll make you breakfast in bed and, you know, all this really sweet stuff. But that's when the censors were like, you know, rampant and they, because it was censored. I mean, in today's world, it's just the opposite. Yes. Frank Zappa, brilliant man, Columbia University graduate. You look at him and you think he's like, you know, going to you know do something wild and crazy in a bad way, but he's just so smart, but he just had that, he liked that look. That was his look. <laughs> it was. It was his signature look. Some interviews take surprising twists, such as the case with Bert Ward, whose jubilant and effusive take on life led to an unexpected passion regarding his change of vocation and lifestyle. Next time on Watching America, in part two of our interview with Bert Ward, we will hear of the love of his life, his courtship and eventual marriage to a billionaires whose father attempted to buy Bert's departure for a mere $10 million. We will learn how he and his wife Tracy have devoted their lives to the rescue and care of large dogs with their non-profit known as Gentle Giants. And along the way, we will gain insight into the importance of emphasizing the good. Join us next time on Watching America for Bert Ward Part 2. Next week, a Batman special. Same bat time, same bat channel. Don't miss it next week. Je suis l'homme que l'on a surnommé le défenseur de la société. have been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our bat sound engineer is Todd Washburn. Our bat producer is Paul Bebo. Our bat senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our bat executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Bat Chief of Content, Heather Mazzoni. And Bat CEO, Bert Schmidt. Special thanks to Bat Field Producer, Anthony Fatinas. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.